Close Source is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnic wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic wear on Instagram at Picnic wear, and that's where W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No flight back vintage, bringing fun new life to old things always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at NoFlightBackVintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at ShiftWheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between. Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. 
Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes, a vintage shop for the psychedelic mind, formerly inside Jeans and Hamtramck with a new Detroit location coming soon. See more on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Wide-Eyed Vintage, a curator of truly covetable vintage from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wide-Eyed Vintage encourages the experimental spirit of dressing up and will provide you with all the special pieces that will make your wardrobe truly unique. Dedicated to preserving the craftsmanship of clothes, Wide-Eyed Vintage only selects pieces that are well-made, pieces that have been proven to last beyond their lifetimes, so you too can enjoy them for more lifetimes to come. See more on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that knows that while January is almost over, it will always be trash month in our hearts. I'm your host, Amanda. This is our 50th full-length episode. It's kind of a wild feeling to be this far into it. I can't believe I haven't run out of things to talk about yet. (laughs) And I'm so glad that all of you are along for this journey. I mean, some of you have been listening since episode one. Isn't that wild? Wow. (laughs) This episode is going to be another hotline episode because, well, we have so many interesting things to talk about, and it seems only appropriate that a 50th episode should feature members of our community. Before we dive into all of those hotline calls, let's take a moment to thank our newest Patreon supporters. First is Christina Flashens, who has been my internet friend since, well, since I lived in LA and published a zine called Sandy. Christina lives in Brooklyn, and she does a lot of really cool moped stuff, among other things. She also really posts some top-notch memes on Instagram. So thank you so much for your support, Christina. Next is Kate Frankowitz, who comes from beautiful Astoria, Oregon, home of, you know, one of our favorite brands, Shift Clothing. Kate actually wrote a letter, well, okay, an email, that we shared a while back about kids' clothing, and thanks to her, there's actually a kids' clothing episode coming on Wednesday. So thank you so much, Kate, for writing such a thoughtful email that it pushed me to learn more about kids' clothing, and also... Thank you for supporting Close Horse. Allison Spanner lives in Houston, Texas, and she's the person behind Gather and Sew, who has like the cutest, all caps cutest, baby dresses I have ever seen. If you're looking for a baby gift that will undoubtedly be passed down to the next generation of babies, 
I like the idea of just babies passing things down. Anyway, whatever. Go check out Gather and Sew. Like so many cute patchwork dresses. I I want one for myself. An adult-sized one, obviously, not a baby one because then I'd have to get Brenda, my cat, to wear it. And I think – I don't think that would go well. She won't even wear a collar. (laughs) We're strictly – naked cat family. But uh, thank you so much for your support, Allison. Last but definitely not least is Aaron D'Agostino, who you might remember as the person whose hotline call started a whole conversation about dress codes and uniforms. Aaron is a librarian, and it feels like such a great honor to be supported by someone whose entire job is encouraging good research. Thank you so much for your support, Aaron. Also, we'll be talking about dress codes and uniforms in like another minute at most, so put a pin in that. But first, of course, I have to remind you that if you would like to support Clothes Horse via Patreon, you can find out more info at patreon.com slash clotheshorse. Of course, I'll share that link in the show notes. I didn't expect you to pause and write it down. Now is actually a great time to sign up because I just released a new Patreon-exclusive episode guest-starring Clothes Horse All-Star Gem, and it's all about the original influencers, the royal family. And it's my favorite Patreon episode so far, so you want to hear it. It's so funny and smart and insightful and somewhat emotional, and yeah, it's about the royal family, but like so much more. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can also send a one-time donation via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions, and I will figure out a way for you to listen to that episode, that Patreon episode, so just let me know if you're interested in that. I also just want to give a shout out to Leslie Travis, who sent me a donation this week so I could get myself some Vianetta. That will only make sense if you also listen to the department, but I urge you to Google Vianetta ASAP, like pause this episode because you are missing out on one of life's most elegant experiences. We're talking like a cat eating fancy feast out of a crystal goblet kind of fanciness. (laughs) Thank you so much, Leslie. Well, I guess it's time to plug in the old landline and start taking these hotline calls. So Let's start with this one from an anonymous caller. If you recall in the last episode, I shared an extremely hot take that I still stand behind. (laughs) And that is, if employers are going to be so untrusting of their employees' ability to dress acceptably, then they should provide uniforms at their expense. As I mentioned, a lot of employers in Japan do just that. And I learned that initially by both watching Agratsuka, which... Seriously, five stars, highly recommended. <laughs> and by actually observing it to a certain extent in Japan, particularly because I was smitten by the pink uniforms of the Shinkansen, that's the bullet train cleaning crew. I mean, just gosh, pink uniforms, sign me up. Maybe I need like a pink podcasting uniform. <laughs> Anyway, I got to stop talking about Japan because it's only a matter of time until I start talking about the best pancake I've ever had, which was also in Japan. (laughs) Okay, so let's listen to the message. (laughs) My experience working at Disney is that everyone has a uniform and some of them are super silly looking because they kind of go off of like whatever land you're in and that's supposed to have like a certain decade and 
you know, each decade you're supposed to walk in and feel like you're actually in that time and or the movie or whatever. And where I worked was at a restaurant and the hosts and the servers and like the wait staff each had like different uniforms, but had like a similar line through them. So um, ours was like a, had a rose theme. So like our lapels had roses and just super supposed to be more like, I think like a seventies or maybe like a probably 1940s style, um, not 70s, sorry, 1940s. Anyway, as much as I hate wearing them because I love expressing myself through my clothing, I will say that it was kind of nice to have a uniform. You know, what they did at Disney is, or what they still do, is they have locker rooms in, like, all the different departments. So there's a few throughout the park. And you would go, you'd scan your ID, check your uniform and yeah, just tell them what size you needed and like what your role was. And then they would give you, you know, those items and you could take up to three um, at a time. And so you can just have them. So you don't have to go check one out every shift and have a locker and you change there. And yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, So I think having a uniform at work should be something that more employers do. It also cuts down on a cost of any like work clothes that you may have to buy with whatever your profession is. Um, so, yeah, and also Disney covered, um, like, a pair of shoes if you worked in, like, um, the food area where you needed, like, non-slip shoes. So that was kind of cool, too, and they would, like, replace them, I think, like, every six months or something like that. Um, but, yeah, I just wanted to give my uh, experience in having to wear a uniform to work every day. Um, love the pod, and, yeah, just keep doing what you're doing. Thanks, Amanda. Bye. It's funny because I didn't even think of places like Disneyland when I thought about uniforms, but think of all the uniforms that place or anything like that would need. It kind of blows my mind. You know, when I started thinking about all the different jobs and worlds and just businesses that exist within just Disneyland even, I can't even think about Disney World. It's too too much for my brain. It's like trying to think about the size of the universe. You just, you just can't get there, right? <laughs> I do like that both the cost of the actual uniform and the burden of cleaning the uniform is handled by the employer. So, I mean, that's just so smart. Another listener, Lizzie, sent me a message about uniforms via Instagram. She said, I wore a uniform for my office job in high school and college. The employees were a mix of office and field employees. We all wore light blue button-down shirts with the company name and logo on the left breast, khakis, and brown closed-toed shoes. If you were going to wear a jacket, there were also company-branded matching fleeces and heavy-duty waterproof hooded coats. At the time, I thought it was super ugly, but it certainly saved me from having to figure out office-appropriate clothing between ages 16 and 21, and it probably saved me a ton of money. Apparently, the uniform started because they were having problems with people wearing inappropriate clothes to work, but that was before I started. So that's interesting. Lizzie worked an office job where there were uniforms. Now, if more workplaces started supplying uniforms, who loses out? Well, for one... The employers have to bear the expense of uniforms, cleaning them, and, you know, they have to create changing rooms for the employees. But data in Japan, of course, I had to talk about Japan again, right? You know, Japan is known as the nation of uniforms, and their data has indicated that employees were more productive, more engaged, and a lot safer 
when wearing uniforms. So it may be a win for employers that kind of pays for itself. But then think about all the retailers who are making money off of selling business clothes. Even fast fashion retailers like H&M have found workwear to be an easy-to-maintain, consistent, just sort of reliable business. So they would be losing some sales there, possibly even like a kind of a substantial amount. I could see retailers like that ultimately banding together to fight any expansion into work uniforms. Maybe they get into the work uniform business themselves. It's hard to say. Although then you would wonder, would they be able to make uniforms that were quality enough to stand up to repeated use in laundry? Hmm. Just another thing to think about. And on the subject of uniforms in Japan, I read an interesting article about the quote pseudo uniform in Japan, basically an unofficial standardized dress for work, social situations, etc. Yes, it's not technically a uniform, but it feels and looks a lot like one in that, you know, everyone is dressed the same. For example, you can get on the subway at rush hour in Tokyo and every man is wearing the exact same suit and shoes. On my first trip to Japan, I actually thought that they were wearing uniforms because I knew that wearing uniforms was common even for office workers. But no, this is just the pseudo uniform. You're probably asking yourself, like, why do people adopt these pseudo uniforms? Why do they look like everyone else? Well, for one... There is a lot of fear involved that if you don't show up to a job interview or even a school interview in the right outfit, you won't get the job, right? And so you don't want to regret what you wore and think that that was the reason that you didn't get that job. So it's better to just be safe, pick the same outfit as everyone else, quote, The pseudo-uniform is a manifestation of the Japanese aversion to failure. Also, there is inherently within the Japanese culture a drive to repress individuality. Now, that might seem odd to you based on maybe, you know, all the years of reading about Harajuku and the wild style there, you know, Fruits Magazine, all that stuff. But that's a really small subculture in the grand scheme of the Japanese population, Quote, another element is people's desire to avoid standing out from the crowd. This also powers demand for pseudo-uniforms, and this demand is likely to persist, changing only if and when Japanese society comes to accept diversity and to take the expression of individuality as the norm. And we'll tell you, when you are walking around the streets of Japan, riding public transportation, you do start to realize that there is a very high level of uniformity around the way people are dressed. It's really interesting to me, and it seems as if for young people, you have a little bit more freedom, but you reach a certain age where you have to sort of, you know, take on the pseudo-uniform. Most importantly, and this kind of ties into what I was saying earlier about retailers losing out when companies adopt true uniforms. These pseudo uniforms are big business for retailers in Japan and like super low effort sales because you just make the same thing over and over again. There's no need to redesign to fit a trend. There's no need to introduce new colors and fabrics. 
there's really no need to even advertise what you're selling because no one wants something special or unique. They don't want a reinterpretation or a twist on an idea. They want the same thing. Furthermore, there's no inventory liability because you don't have to worry about buying too much of something trendy, then the trend dying, and you're stuck with tons of unsold merchandise that you have to sell at a deep discount. The selling of these pseudo-uniforms has essentially become a low-risk business. Quote, they have created a nationwide marketplace where people can simply buy a product without giving any thought to alternatives. I mean, to a certain extent, this is not dissimilar to the types of work clothing that you might see at Banana Republic or J. Crew or even H&M. It's just for a majority of workplaces in the United States, you are allowed to be a little bit trendier. We seem to have a stronger sense of... I don't know, like a culture of individuality here in the United States and in a lot of the Western countries. It's very different from Japan in that way. Do you have any thoughts on dress codes, uniforms, maybe even pseudo-uniforms? Like what are some pseudo-uniforms that you see even here in the U.S. or in Canada, the U.K., Australia, just in the Western world? I would love to hear your opinion on that. So drop me a line. Okay, next we have a message from Carrie, who is calling us about something super trash month related. Hi, Amanda. It's Carrie. Thank you for your conversations with Anna, the trash walker. In addition to asking my elected officials to support Donate, Don't Dump initiatives, there is an actual piece of legislation that was introduced into Congress in February 2020 called the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act. I'll quote some of the pieces of the bill summary here. The bill makes certain producers of products, for example, packaging, paper, single-use products, beverage containers, or food service products, fiscally responsible for collecting, managing, and recycling or composting the products after consumer use. Beginning on January 1st, 2022, the bill phases out a variety of single-use products, such as plastic utensils. The bill also sets forth provisions to encourage the reduction of single-use products, including by establishing programs to refund consumers for returning beverage containers and by establishing a tax on carry-out bags. So I haven't read the whole bill, and I'm sure it has flaws, but it certainly sounds like a start in terms of putting responsibility back on the plastics industry to deal with the waste that they are producing. The bill also specifies a moratorium on new permits for facilities that manufacture plastics until regulations are updated to address pollution from these facilities. It requires the EPA to publish guidelines for a national standardized labeling system for recycling and composting receptacles, and it calls for limitations on the export of plastic waste to other countries. It's funny, you mentioned being particularly anxious when it comes to picking up the phone, and I feel exactly the same way. I've always dreaded ordering a pizza. So I'm using the closed force hotline to help overcome these fears and to work up the courage to call my representative in Congress, Carolyn Mahoney, who has not yet co-sponsored the Break Free from Plastics Pollution Act. I'm telling you about it to help hold myself accountable and to encourage other listeners to check it out. Thanks, as always, for all the information and insight that closed force provides on an ongoing basis. Admittedly, I will miss trash months, but then again, it's an ongoing theme. Okay, that's it for now. Bye. 
I'm so glad that Carrie called about H.R. 5845, a.k.a. the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act of 2020. By the way, that's kind of a tongue twister. Try to say it out loud. <laughs> like five times fast. The Surfrider Foundation, which is an organization focused on getting trash out of water, worked really closely with U.S. Senator Tom Udall of New Mexico and U.S. Representative Alan Lowenthal of California to introduce this federal legislation that is intended to tackle the plastic pollution crisis, which we've talked about here on the pod, but we talk about it a lot. I have very strong feelings about plastic. This bill addresses the reality that we cannot recycle our way out of this crisis. Because as you may know by now, I've certainly cited this a few times in previous episodes, only about 10% of all plastic ever produced, and I mean ever, since like the beginning of plastic, has ever been recycled. So we have to change our plastic consumption ways, and we have to do it like right now. Yes, Part of that responsibility is on us, but we will never make even a dent without forcing businesses to change their plastic habits. I know Carrie just listed some of the things that this bill contains, but I'm going to go through it again. So the legislation will institute a 10 cent national refund requirement for all beverage containers. Certain states already have this. You know, we had it in Oregon. These will be refunded to customers when they return containers. Any unclaimed refunds will go to beverage producers to supplement investment in nationwide collection and recycling infrastructure, which we need. As Carrie mentioned, the law will also phase out some of the most nefarious single-use plastics that cannot be recycled and already have available alternatives, including lightweight plastic carryout bags, food and drinkware that's made from expanded polystyrene, aka styrofoam, plastic stirrers, plastic utensils, straws will only be available upon request. This would have a huge impact because often these items are just egregiously wasted, both by us, the consumer, and by businesses. Like, for example, I feel like plastic utensils are always included excessively in carry-out orders. Or have you ever seen a person stir their coffee with two plastic stirrers? Because I have, and it's chilling in a weird way. The legislation would also impose a fee on the distribution of carryout bags, which is important now more than ever. You know, I do think a lot, and I've mentioned this before on the show, I do think about how the era of COVID has, without a doubt, increased our waste because carryout uses a lot of all kinds of packaging, right? Utensils, bags, containers. A lot of it is not biodegradable, um, and it's probably not being recycled either. You know, think about all of our reusable masks, getting groceries delivered in plastic bags. I could go on and on. This is the kind of stuff that makes my brain feel like it's going to explode with terror. Well, this fee that would be imposed on the distribution of carryout bags would be, basically the fee would be retained by, you know, the restaurant they would implement this reusable bag credit program at their, you know, place of business. And then the fees that were collected would be used to fund access to reusable bags, as well as litter cleanup and recycling infrastructure. Because as you know, those plastic bags are a huge component of litter. 
plastic beverage containers would be required to include an increasing percentage of recycled content before they could even enter the market. That would be a huge win as well because most of these are what we call virgin plastic. There's also language addressing the plastics in cigarettes and disposable vapes. That's another thing that stresses me out sometimes. And plastic waste will no longer be exported to countries that don't have the infrastructure to handle it properly, i.e., you know, recycling it, which happens so much more than you know right now. And that stuff just pretty much ends up in landfills or more likely in the ocean and other waterways. It's very, very bad. So this bill, I mean, you're like, this is the best bill ever. Sign me up. What can I do for this bill? Well, this bill currently is sort of chilling in the subcommittee on water resources and environment. So now is a great time to call your representative. I have a feeling that this has been sort of like cast to the wayside in light of all the other crises in the past year. So let's tell them that this is important to us and we need to address it right now. Thank you so much to Carrie for overcoming your telephobia to share this very important information with us. If Carrie can do it, so can we. And as Anna told us a few episodes ago, calling is so much more impactful Yes, there are so many bad things happening in the world right now, but the plastic problem is only going to get worse and we will cross a point of no return. So let's fix it now. On the topic of trash, I've been wanting to tell you about the nefarious origins of the anti-litter movement. So, well, this, the last episode of Trash Month, is a great time to share it. Now, I hate litter. I mean... Who, who would be out there saying that they loved litter? I'm not really sure. Way back in the day, my OkCupid profile explicitly stated that I would not date anyone who was cool with litter. I also only wanted to date people who bought the generic versions of ibuprofen and allergy medicine because I'm not looking to get with someone who's just wasting all their money on name brand medication. The most egregious example of littering I've ever seen in my life uh, happened, man, I don't know, it was, it was one of the first years that I lived in Philadelphia working as a buyer. And I was walking through the park. It was a beautiful day, beautiful, beautiful spring day. And there were two men walking ahead of me carrying just like a huge pizza box, like the largest size pizza box you could find. And they were both eating slices out of it. And then abruptly, almost as if they had like telepathically signaled this to one another, they both put their slices back in the box and I could see there that it was mostly an entire pizza and they just dropped the pizza box on the ground and kept walking. (laughs) So, you know, I've seen some litter. It still happens, right? Especially here in the East Coast cities, for sure. I think other cities... Maybe there's a little bit more social pressure not to do it, or at least the city itself is cleaning it up. I'm not sure. You know, the nationwide anti-litter campaign began in the 50s. According to Heather Rogers, who wrote a book called Gone Tomorrow, The Hidden Life of Garbage, which is totally on my reading list, the entire anti-litter movement was initiated by a consortium of industry groups who wanted to divert the nation's attention away from even more radical legislation that was going to control the amount of waste these companies were putting out. Yep, that's right. 
They didn't give an F about actual litter. They just didn't want some litter horror stories to deter them from making more and more disposable, and I mean disposable in quotes, packaging. Because this consortium of industry groups was in fact packaging manufacturers. After World War II, American manufacturers were running at full blast. I mean, this is the era of the baby boomers being born, of middle-class prosperity, of good-paying manufacturing jobs for everyone. And they needed American consumers to keep buying more and more of what they were selling if they wanted to maintain their profit and growth. But there's only so much stuff that one person or one family can own. So that was a challenge for these manufacturers. How could they sell even more stuff when there was a limit to how much stuff people could buy? Well, for one, they could make things that would go in and out of style or trend. We call that fashion, right? Or they could make things that would break after a certain period of time or at least be unable to be repaired after a certain amount of time. The modern version of that, I would say, is that also the software could no longer be updated. I'm looking at you, Apple. That's called planned obsolescence, and we've talked about that here on the show before. So we're familiar with those two ways of convincing people that they need to buy more things. But another hot idea from making more stuff and making more money was to make the packaging that these things came in non-reusable, aka disposable. Because you have to remember that, yes, there's a lot of money in the things that we buy, but there's also a lot of money in making packaging. So for example, the soda can, the cereal box, the plastic water bottle, In most cases, the cosmetics you buy, the packaging is the most expensive part of it. The actual contents, just a few cents. The problem with this new approach of non-reusable packaging was that a lot of people at that time didn't know what to do with it. So they just kind of left it wherever they were done using it. So Do you remember that episode of Mad Men where Betty and Don take their kids on a picnic and when they're done, they just sort of shake off the blanket and leave all the trash behind? Obviously, as an anti-litter person, that's really stuck with me. But it was actually like, what an amazing, historically accurate detail because that was what people were doing because they just didn't know any better. And it's not like there was any education around why you shouldn't do that. It's also not like there were trash cans around probably even for them to use. So what happened is that there was just trash everywhere. And in 1953, Vermont passed a law banning throwaway bottles after farmers complained that glass bottles were being tossed into haystacks and being eaten by unsuspecting cows. This was obviously very bad PR for the packaging industry. And, you know, it was just starting to take off as this big behemoth industry that we know it to be today. They were worried that states were going to start passing laws banning disposable packaging, like maybe Vermont was just the beginning. And that would be very bad for their, you know, burgeoning businesses. In 1953, The packaging industry, led by American Can Company and Owens, Illinois Glass Company, 
They were inventors of the one-way can and bottle, meaning disposable cans and bottles. They joined up with other industry leaders, including Coca-Cola and the Dixie Cup Company. I don't know how many of you remember Dixie Cups from your youth, but they were tiny little paper cups. I think they still exist that, you know, you might get juice served to you in at a birthday party at school, or you might use for mouthwash at home. It's kind of a really weird thing that Dixie Cups exist. (laughs) Anyway, they all got together to form Keep America Beautiful. You are probably familiar with this campaign because it still exists today. And it does have a really lovely name, right? It really appeals to our inner patriot. Keep America Beautiful shifted the blame of trash from the companies that were actually making the disposable packaging that was the problem to the consumer, that it was our behavior that was problematic. It was our job to keep trash in check by throwing it away properly, not for them to reduce the amount of trash they were creating. Why it was patriotic to throw your quasi-disposable packaging in the right waste receptacle. The campaign was wildly successful. And you know what else? Environmentalists embraced it. In fact, it would be decades until the environmental movement realized that they had been essentially bamboozled. I've always wanted to work that word into an episode, so I'm glad I just did it now. In the 80s, the campaign expanded to include a lot of emphasis on recycling. We've talked about this in previous episodes, how the 80s were really bad from an optics perspective when it comes to trash, because, you know, the news was filled with overflowing and ever-expanding landfills. There was a barge of trash that was just rolling around the East Coast looking for a port. Finally, in the 80s, people were aware that we were creating a lot of trash. So in swoops the packaging industry, who wants to divert blame from themselves to create more messaging around recycling. But as we know now, Recycling can barely make a dent in the amount of trash we create every day because the laws around packaging, plastic, and so-called disposable items need to change. This will mean the end of many businesses who are here solely to create future garbage in the name of packaging, but it could create new industries based on developing and manufacturing easily reusable options. And ultimately, we have to break our love affair with plastic packaging and water bottles and plastic utensils and so many other things if we're ever going to save our planet. I mean, imagine this. What if styrofoam plates were just illegal or those terrible disposable plastic party tablecloths? What about those red solo cups that are so iconic as like the ultimate drinking vessel of a fraternity, right? What if all those things no longer existed? It's not like we would stop eating food because we wouldn't have anywhere to put it and we wouldn't die of thirst because we had nowhere else to drink our beer from, right? (laughs) It's a lot to think about, but I do think that the breakthrough from Plastic Pollution Act is a good start, so please call your representative. Okay, well, let's go back to the hotline for one last message. Hi, my name's Chelsea. I'm loving your podcast. I'm trying to keep up with the new ones coming out, but then also going back to some of the older ones, like in between releases of the new episodes. 
I just finished the first half of your conversation um, about T-shirts, and I had some thoughts on that. I sell on Poshmark, and so I always check the T-shirt section at the thrift store because, like, old-fashioned, um, vintage, really kooky tees sell very well on Poshmark. So I always check over there. And my son, who is six, he loves the kooky vacation tees. So he has a T-shirt, and it's way too big for him, but, of course, he wears it everywhere. It has this um, alligator on it, and the gator is smiling, and it's just really silly looking. But it says, I get my way because I have teeth or something, something silly like that. But it's from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We see these kinds of tees all the time where it's just like a one-off bridesmaid t-shirt or a vacation tee, Disneyland tee, sometimes like church small group t-shirts. Um, and they're literally everywhere. Um, my local Goodwill probably has two whole racks of just t-shirts. So anyway, what I've been thinking about, and I haven't actually followed through and done it yet, is what if we were to go in, what if I were to go in there and buy, like, some of the T-shirts that no one would want to buy, the stuff that's just really specific, has names on it, a birthday or whatever, and cut it into strips and made, like, these little rugs that you see on Pinterest. And I'm sure there's all kinds of other things you can make, too, like coasters or blankets or something like that. And what if what if all across the country we had lots of close horse listeners going in and buying these teas that are not going to go anywhere except the landfill or an incinerator and created things with them and gave them away or maybe even sold them? Um, anyway, just a thought. I think I'm going to go do that. I think I'm going to go this weekend and buy a bunch of T-shirts that will not ever have another home and see if I can make something with it. And if I do, I will post it in the Closed Horsing Around group. Thank you, Amanda, for everything. I really enjoy listening to your podcast, and I just wanted to let you know that I don't ever leave voicemails, so this is way out of my comfort zone. That's how much I love your podcast. Okay, bye. First off, thank you so much, Chelsea, for leaving me a voicemail. I love how everyone is confronting their phone phobia to talk to me. You know, it really does mean so much to me because I know how hard it is to call a stranger, much less leave a voicemail. And I'm so excited about Chelsea's idea. Like, I love the idea of a clothes horse craft challenge. I can't believe we haven't had one yet. And I think this is perfect for 2021. We could share everyone's end products on the clothes horse blog. I'm excited about this idea. I know we will definitely be talking about it on the Close Horsing Around Facebook group this week, so it might be the perfect time for you to join. So this ties in directly to another email that I received this week from Rose. She says, hi, Amanda. I'm a Philly listener, and I'm reaching out to answer the question, what do you do with t-shirts from episode number 48? I have been making crochet rag rugs out of cotton t-shirts, sheets, and thrifted yardage for over a decade. I started making t-shirt yarn when I was a teenager because I loved crocheting but couldn't afford enough yarn to match my creative output. 
Yarn is expensive. I have an Etsy shop where I've sold rugs since 2010 at bravehandtextiles.etsy.com. If listeners are interested in trying it for themselves, there are a ton of tutorials on Pinterest that show the most effective way to cut up a basic t-shirt to make yarn. T-shirt yarn is heavy and so is most suited to rugs and baskets. My sister made potholder loops for a potholder loom with t-shirts. Cotton t-shirt fabric or jersey is great for certain things because it doesn't fray when cut. Keep up the good work, Rose Beerhorst, who you can find on Instagram at Bravehand Textiles. So first off, go look at Rose's rugs. They are amazing. And they should definitely inspire you all for your upcoming t-shirt rescue craft project. Rose also shared some links that may be helpful, and I will include those in the show notes. I'll also include a link to her Etsy shop so you can see what she's doing because it is really cool. I've also reached out to Rose to see if we can talk more for future episodes, so stay tuned. So who wants to join the Clothes Horse T-Shirt Rescue Project? Maybe it can even be a friendly competition with a special prize thrifted by me here in Amish country. So who's in? If you're interested, drop me a line on Instagram or via email and we can figure out how it's going to work. I think it's a great tie-in to what I'm going to tell you next. As I mentioned, this is the last episode of Trash Month because alas, January is now coming to an end. So what's February then? Well, it's secondhand month. We'll be talking about all kinds of things, including thrifting tips, mending your existing clothes and thrift finds, selling and buying secondhand on all the platforms out there, and so much more. And I want to hear from you. Do you have a favorite thing you like to search for secondhand? You know, why is that your favorite thing? What's the weirdest thing you've bought secondhand? Do you make a living selling secondhand? Do you have any tips of your own? Do you make something cool out of thrifted materials? Reach out to me either on Instagram, via email at amanda at clotheshorse.world, or call the hotline at 717-925-7417. I wanted to take a moment to talk about one of Clothes Horse's Pegasus sponsors, Late to the Party. You might recognize this brand because Jenny, the designer and founder of LTTP, was a guest on some previous episodes where we talked about fabric waste, Nellie Olson, unsolved mysteries, thrift shopping, all kinds of really fun things. I'm so sick of buying clothes that aren't made well and fall apart after a few wears, and I'm constantly frustrated with this cycle. You know, buy a shirt, wear it three times, wash it once, and boom, it completely falls apart. Or I'd buy a dress on sale without actually loving how it looked on me, and then it'd be sitting in my closet for years. I know that that experience is familiar to you too. It took me a minute, a lot of minutes, to realize that buying cheap pieces was never worth the savings. With each new purchase, I was ultimately left feeling bummed out, disappointed, and really unsatisfied. It's such a waste of our hard-earned money, let alone terrible for the environment, right? Well, Jenny was feeling all of these same feelings. Basically like, hey, fuck fast fashion, something has to change. So she made a vow to do something about it. 
And she did something pretty major. She started Late to the Party, a slow fashion brand that focuses on modern, easy-to-wear silhouettes made from unique vintage, salvaged, and thrifted fabrics. Investing in a Late to the Party piece will not only have people asking you, where did you get that? But when you wear their jackets, you can feel the quality. Not only will you look dope as hell in a truly unique piece, but you'll know that you're wearing something that was ethically made with care in Brooklyn, New York by Jenny. No more buying cheap clothes that leave you disappointed. It's time to invest in pieces that truly feel like you and will last for years to come. You can learn more about Jenny's process and see the rotating selection of incredible unique statement pieces at shoplatetotheparty.com. And Clothes Horse listeners get a special offer just for being rad. Use code CLOTHESHORSE to get 10% off your first order. Once again, that's code CLOTHESHORSE to get 10% off your first order at shoplatetotheparty.com. I'll also share that code in the show notes. And be sure to check out the brand on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Thank you so much for your support, Jenny. Well, this is turning into one of my favorite episodes, thanks to all of you and all the things you make me think about. So it makes sense that we would have to include one of our all-time favorite members of the Clothes Horse community, Danny of Picnic Wear. She and I took some time to talk about what she's been thinking about recently as she works to grow her business. So let's hear what she has to say. Hey, Danny. Hello. <laughs> I mean, if you've listened to Close Hearts long enough, you definitely know Danny. You know her voice. You probably, if you don't know her in real life, feel like you do. But Danny, I just want to remind everyone who you are. Yes, I'm Danny. I run picnic wear it's my baby um i was on episode 18 19 20 if you want to hear more about me i think it was that (laughs) but uh yeah you've probably heard my voice a lot of times and heard my patreon ad that comes at the beginning of every close horse uh episode so yeah y'all know who i am so you've been doing a lot of stuff this year that is so smart which is to like you know, actually sit down and do the really boring and kind of stressful work of figuring out mm-hmm. how to grow your business, right? Which that's right is the unfun part. Kind of. And, it depends who you are. I don't find it that fun. <laughs> <laughs> For some people, it's very intimidating, but it actually, yeah. I feel like it helps. It kind of takes a lot of weight off your shoulders because you see this path forward, you know? Totally. That feels good. So why don't you talk about some of the stuff you've been doing? Yeah. So, um, that's, I'm glad you framed it that way because I think back to when I decided that I wanted to leave my like <clears throat> full-time work and start um, my own business, figure out like, can I be an entrepreneur? I started taking these business courses and I remember um, I took this one, it's called Fast Track New Ventures. It is out of SBA New York, but I think that they have it like featured all over. It was totally free. Um, so recommend looking into that. It was a huge undertaking though. It was like almost like 90 hours of time or something. I'm sure they have like a zoom equivalent now. Anyways, I digress. Um, at the very end of that program, I remember one of the instructors saying like, if there's one thing I can leave you with, it's to remember to work on your business at least once a week. So not just like the day-to-day inner working sort of stuff, but like 
some, some kind of like the overarching sort of thing. So I've kind of tried to take that with me um, through my like entrepreneurship journey is like kind of looking at bigger picture aspects of my business as often as possible. And specifically, yeah, January, now that I see picnic wear growing, I've decided to kind of like focus kind of more time on that and like really planning on how to grow this business. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that's definitely um, something I'm working on. But when I reached out to you about um, speaking um, on your podcast again, I specifically mentioned the term cottage industry because it's something that I've been kind of digging into a little bit lately, and I wanted to talk a little bit about. I'm happy I I reached out to you like a week ago because it's it's forced me to do even more research <laughs> and digging into it. So Good. I was like, let me try and like impress Amanda with a little bit of like research that she would typically be doing. I'm excited. So, yeah, I'm I'm excited too because then. As I started doing this, like I uncut, like when I first reached out to you, like if we talked then, I wouldn't have had a lot to bring to the table. But now I've actually like, like unearthed a lot of really interesting things. So I'm going to take you back to kind of uh, the beginning of just, you know, a lot of people probably or perhaps have heard my origins of how Picnicware started. But I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, scaling my business and and a lot of that started with at the beginning of the pandemic I was trying to you know I had already started making some hats and starting to feel out this idea of making some things and selling them um, which is a little bit different than what I had been doing before and I saw that Anna Sui was going to be interviewed on like a business of fashion um, zoom thing so I hopped into that watched it live because she is has always been a huge inspiration to me. I've heard she's, like, not the nicest person to work for, but I'm trying to, like, ignore that because, like, <laughs> she was, like, you know, I was falling in love with fashion in, like, the late 90s, early 2000s, and she was just, like, so cool. Like, her clothes were amazing. Mm-hmm. So big inspiration to me. But anyways, so in the spring, she – Um, I'm going to read some quotes from from the Zoom call. So she said, people have spent much of the lockdowns at home in sweats and a T-shirt. We believe that people might go polar opposite once social distancing restrictions are relaxed. Suddenly people are going to want to be seen, we said, adding that eating at restaurants and drinking at bars will become occasions for self-expression, which I totally love as someone who, like, one of my favorite parts of my day is getting dressed in the morning, Mm -hmm. um, which has been hard during the pandemic, but... Anyways, she continues on to say handicrafts may see a resurgence as people are now taking the time to relearn those skills, we said. Tie-dyeing, crocheting, and knitting might well become popular creative outlets for many people investing time in new hobbies. And this shift could be reflected in upcoming collections. We hope the pace of the industry will slow down and allow space for self-reflection, looking back to the 90s. There wasn't this frantic need to be working all the time. I remember enjoying the holidays, we said. Let's hope that this gets back under control and that we learn how to balance our lifestyles again. And then I also recall her talking a lot about, like, the 60s and 70s and the hippie movement and people kind of rejecting this idea of overconsumption and this new, like, DIY subculture that was emerging, a lot due to, like, the 
you know, the political climate at the time and like, you know, mm-hmm. the Vietnam War going on. And, um, and it's interesting because my mom fits into this, like the time when she was like in her early twenties and she started her business, she started with upcycling. So I just, this all really inspired me at the time. So I wanted to bring this up because I feel like it's crazy. That was like in June, I think that she had that conversation and you and I both know that it's truly what happened. Like it's crazy how many like small makers are emerging out of what's happening in this lockdown. So I'm really excited by it for me. I'm hoping that this is kind of like an alternative future of fashion, kind of like a fashion Mm -hmm. disruption. I think that's all what we're hoping for. So my thought is like, how do we scale this though? Like how do we, disrupt it in such a way that it has real impact on the fast fashion world. And so this is where the whole cottage industry came about, the my, the thought I had about it. And I started looking into cottage industries of the past. And when I initially heard of cottage industry, it was from Alabama Channon. Do you know much about that brand? Yes. So we, maybe it was Selena actually in her episode. Mm. She's a huge fan. I'm pretty sure it was Selena. And I mean, I'm sure you're going to say this, but I don't want to steal your thunder, but the big, the amazing thing about Alabama Channon is she's like, my business is only ever going to be this big. And that's great. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. So I wanted to look into a lot of like how she started and stuff. And so she started in the early 2000s. She was based out of New York. um, And she started making these like one of a kind t-shirts upcycled, but all out of all kind of like um, hand stitched together in really interesting ways, like not even by machine. And so she was looking on about into how to scale her business. And naturally, as I'm discovering, um, trying to manufacture within New York, even then was hard and even harder now. And I think being that we're talking about like one of a kind pieces, it's, it's not as easy as just like sending fabric and, you know, a tech pack to a factory. It's like each item is kind of specific in in what you're doing with it. And it's, it's just more difficult to scale in that way. So she moved back to Alabama and started working with a lot of local artisans who had lost manufacturing jobs because, you know, there used to be a lot of fashion manufacturing in Alabama and really dwindled. Um, so anyways, I feel like I've talked a lot about this without actually explaining what a cottage industry is. <laughs> I think um, it's a good intro. It's a good intro. Yeah, okay. Sorry. I'm, I'm a little long-winded. I, I, I thought I would be a little more succinct. Um, <laughs> but so basically what a cottage industry was is before, for the most part, it was popular before the Industrial Revolution. So it is I'm going to read a little blurb about it. A cottage industry is a small-scale decentralized manufacturing business often operated out of a home rather than a purpose-built factory, typically part-time, and it often means looks like uh, sort of supplementing income for someone because it's just something they do, like, interspersed with, you know, the other things they do. Um, cottage industries are defined by the amount of investment required to start, as well as the number of people employed. They often focus on the production of labor-intensive goods, but face a significant disadvantage when competing with factory-based manufacturers that mass-produce goods, naturally. Mm -hmm. Um, It's also referred to as the putting-out system, but I'm not going to call it that. No, that's 
Yeah, well, skip that one. Right. Also, like, this cottage core is such a fad right now. So, like, let's take it beyond just, like, this, like, you know, aesthetic sort of thing. And, like, you know, I feel like there's meaning behind this. And it, it ties in a lot with, like, the whole cottage core thing. Um, anyways, it was also known as workshop system and domestic system. So this is how... Uh, uh, Natalie of Alabama Channon um, started her business. And so this is kind of what I was thinking in terms of scaling. So kind of, and it's kind of what I do already, um, but wanting to, to increase that a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I'm in this networking group and I've told you about like, I'm in like a couple networking groups, which I highly recommend looking into networking <laughs> groups for people starting um, small businesses. So I posted about how I was looking for, like, skilled laborers in one of these groups, and I was so excited by the number of people who responded and were trying to help me out and everything. But one person said that they used to work for Alabama Channon. And um, so I thought it was really interesting, some information she posted about this. She said, I don't know if this this is still true, but when I worked for Alabama Channon, she got shut down by the labor department for hiring artisans who worked in their homes to hand sew and embroider for garments. Um, it seemed shitty at first, but we realized it was to protect the laborers and potentially children. The labor department doesn't have visibility into homes and can't ensure the person who says they are sewing at home doesn't have a sweatshop in their basement. So, mm-hmm. Natalie what she did was brilliant. She got all her sewists together, taught them how to start little home businesses. She would create kits for her garments and the sewists who bid would then bid on the kits and buy them from her. And then they would sew them at home and sell the finished garment back to her. So it ended up being a win-win for everyone. And now she also has her own cut and sew factory. So, yeah, I thought that was really interesting um, and so helpful for someone to chime in because um, it's good to know these hurdles that people came across before you then come across them yourself. So, anyways, that was just a lot of information. Um, I just thought it was interesting. And, you know, I know a lot of people are probably wondering, like, how do I scale up my business? Because we can only produce so much. And, And like we were talking about at the beginning of this call, like, um, there's so much like business stuff that needs to be done now for me that like, it's so hard to actually get down and dirty and like really make things. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's so fascinating to me because, you know, like the making stuff by the piece at home thing still does really exist in the United mm-hmm. States. And it, most <laughs> of the time it's actually very abusive. Like you were mentioning, mm-hmm. um, Yeah, it's one of the, it's that whole like pipe by the piece model yes. that, keeps a lot of garment workers in poverty. Mm-hmm. It's such a bummer because it's so smart, especially now, to let people sew at home. Uh, right. But like you are, you know, but yeah. you know, then it does lead to children getting involved. I have a couple of friends who are adults now, obviously, but their mothers worked in one way or another doing this like piecemeal work at home. I think piecemeal mm-hmm. is actually the term for it. And they'd be like, yeah, all day on Saturday, I just help my mom make things, you know? Damn. Yeah. Uh, so, it it is it is a thing. Uh yeah. But I I think, you know, something that I think about a lot is okay, there are two ways of thought around like how we change the industry, right? Yeah. One thought is like we all work really aggressively to get the big companies to 
change what they're doing. And I, I feel like as a person who's worked in that industry for a long time, and I, I think you're probably going to agree with me here, that mm-hmm. those companies are so deeply entrenched in the way, way things mm-hmm. are done right now that I, I can't imagine them changing. Like they're not going to suddenly be like, oh, all of our factories are now paying living wages. Like that's yeah. just not going to happen. Right? I completely agree. I'm just like, I cannot imagine. It's like things move so, so rapidly. And at the end of the day, it's all about <laughs> profitability. Like to change your model from being like profit first to people first, it's like, that is a huge switch. And I hate to say it's a pretty unrealistic to think that I that know. could happen, that, you know? That's what I think, too. Like, I know H&M has been making this big play where they're like, we see that sustainability is our future. But what they're really saying underneath that is we realized by burning, like, billions of dollars worth of clothing that our brand's not popular anymore. So we're going to adopt yep. this new marketing perspective. But using recycled fabrics, I know I'm preaching to the choir here and I talk about this all the time, but, like, using recycled fabrics isn't the fix. You know, it's it's so much bigger than yeah. that. And so I just have a hard time. The reality is that if we were like, okay, we want, we're going to rely on this one facet of like, we're all going to push together for these companies to change their ways. There are too many of those companies that are too big right now that mm-hmm. if they really truly change their ways and begin to embody what we need to happen to save the planet, a lot of them would go out of business. And they don't want that. Oh, They're in the absolutely. business of staying in business, right? Yeah. So I think the other path you can take to this, which I believe in so much more wholeheartedly, is allowing and helping businesses like yours and all the other people that are in our community to grow. Because, not one, none of you are looking to become billionaires, I assume. So no. I think that when you pass a certain line, and this is going to sound really cynical, when you pass a certain line, you have to stop caring about yeah. what's right and wrong. Totally. And, uh, like, when we go back to that other path of, like, we just get the big companies to change, I don't think they're so built upon this, like, infrastructure of not caring that I don't know how they bring it back. It's not saying that the people who work there don't care, but the way the business is built and the metrics they deliver on and all the processes they have in place involves having to stop caring a little bit, you know? Oh, it's and, too far gone. It's, it's like too far it's gone. Like, it's, like... Maybe if we started talking about this in the early 2000s before it started happening, there might be something to it. But, yeah, the, I mean, the structure is, I mean, it's it's held up by the systems that are oppressive. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, it's not something that you can, you can't, like, change the structure of the house with the house on top of it. Yeah, you know, that's, a, exactly. that's a really bad analogy, but I think you know what I mean. Yeah, I know. I don't really know enough about building houses to say yeah, that. Yeah, me neither, but properly. I know I know it sounds dangerous <laughs> <laughs> to change the foundation while we're still in the house. The foundation, that's would, the like, word. Follow, yeah, yeah, there you go. I mean, that's the extent of my house building knowledge, so we got it right. all out there. <laughs> exactly. But, yeah, I think – so that's why I really lean heavily in terms of what I – the message I push on Close Wars and, and on social media and all of that is, like, we need to we need to divert the money that we spend with like the big companies to the small makers, the small brands, mm-hmm. the emerging brands, all the people who started businesses in the past year, you know, because that's how it really happens. It's not just withholding our money from those bad businesses, it's also helping good businesses grow. I mean, I I think we all need to buy less stuff and make it last longer. Yeah. That's like a really key component of it, but 
Absolutely. Uh, first off, all those big businesses, they don't want to hear that. That is definitely not the message they're ever going to come to the table with because no. they're already making so so much extra stuff that if we mm-hmm. bought even less stuff, they are in such a bad place. I don't even know how they recover from that. You know, a lot. That's why right. a lot of people went bankrupt in 2020, right? Yeah. Uh, I think that despite like, okay, we're going to pull back on our consumption and make more meaningful choices, we still are going to buy stuff. That is yeah. just how it is. Like, I, right. when people are like, I didn't buy anything for a whole year. I'm like, that is super admirable, but I think that that is out of reach for a lot of people. That's yeah, like a really absolutely. privileged place to be, right? Absolutely. And, and so buy things, buy them from people like Danny, right? You know, or all the other makers I've talked to on the show, some I haven't even met yet, you know, like that by creating this cottage industry, it's like for every huge gap corporation, we could have 10,000 small makers, uh, probably 100,000 small makers who are making a living, who are paying a sustainable, like a living wage to the people who work for them, are really minding their waste. Like these small business owners have a good quality of life. You know, I know we're not, none of, no one's there right now, right? Everyone right. is struggling. But, like, but yeah, we're getting there. Like I look at someone like Big Red Press. I would assume yeah. that the founders of Big Red Press are living a pretty good quality of life. They're not like buying yachts. And, you know, getting into all kinds of other weird stuff that seems to happen when you get super rich. And they're also doing things the right way. No, totally. Yeah, absolutely. And so what you were saying before, I think the first step is, of course, buying less. Um, Mm -hmm. That's like the big thing um, that I feel like we're always trying to say, because when it comes to the maker movement, too, it's going to cost a little bit more. And I definitely appreciate that it's not in everyone's budget. I will always try and offer an item or two right now. It's the masks. I have something else that I'm planning soon. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, a, <laughs> that's a, you know, a, a more approachable price point for, you know, a wider range of budgets. Um, mm-hmm. But then I think, you know, of course, there's the understanding that these items that take hours to make, like, we as makers want to pay ourselves for that time. And it's not a bad thing to want a profit in your business too, because it's one thing to pay yourself, but you need to have a little bit of profit too. And I think that's where a lot of makers um, probably could use a little, a a little help in understanding um, because they're not actually charging for anything more than just their labor. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, so those prices are going to seem scary sometimes when you're especially when you're used to buying fast fashion but the whole idea is don't buy as much like only buy those items that are super super special and that may mean buying way 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 less frequently um but you could still end up spending the same amount in total you're just not accumulating as many things yeah Um, but that's a hard thing i mean even myself i am constantly trying to like tell myself that because even though I haven't bought fast fashion in many years I buy like a lot of vintage and thrifted things like I still have this like constant desire to be wanting new things which goes a lot back to I know you talked a lot about like the um like when we're children and we're basically being advertised (laughs) to in Sunday morning cartoons constantly like it is ingrained in our culture so it's understandable that it's really, really hard to unlearn that behavior. Um, but, I mean, 
let's all hold hands and do it together, you know? That's right. I mean, we're all in this journey together. That's why I'm always very forthright that, like, listen, I have had so many bad weeks at work where I'm literally sitting on my lunch break eating some crappy overpriced salad and looking at Zara for something to cheer myself up. Like, it's something, I mean, I, I think of when I was like a kid, if it was a bad week at school, my grandma would be like, let's go out for lunch and go shopping, get a new outfit, you know, like, not that she was like, I'm going to make you a good consumer, but she, that was ingrained in her too. It's like we pass on from generation to generation. Uh, It's what keeps the economy going. I mean, think about all the people who were like, you know, if we didn't shut down this economy, everything would be different. You know, like, right. yeah, it turns out that actually, like, that wasn't a good idea to, like, keep the economy open either. That's a whole other podcast. That's not my podcast. Like a quick but... fix kind of answer that's not yeah. so long. Yeah. Yeah. And I think something I cannot underscore enough, and you hit the nail on the head there, is, like, yes, things for small makers are more expensive. Why? One, those people make a living wage. They're doing things the right mm-hmm. way. Two, they're trying to grow their business. And three, most importantly, the price we pay for stuff right now, brand new, is so absurd and so disconnected. Like, I, you know, Mm -hmm. I've been bringing this up a lot lately, but Dustin and I have been watching The Price is Right because it's like, we kind of like to do it while we're eating dinner, and it makes us, like, so happy. And I'm actually, like, if I could build a time machine and go back to, like, 1983, I think I could clean up on prices. Oh, my God, me too. I love, like... I can remember, like, a vintage thing, a thing I bought from a thrift store, like, eight years ago. I can remember exactly how much I paid for it. Like, for some reason, like, knowing the price of things is, like, I feel like it's a great skill of mine. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, this makes me feel good because I am in the same boat. Like, I'm always like, oh, yeah, macaroni and cheese in 19, in the 80s, it was 47 cents because I know my mom would, like, sometimes send me to the grocery store. Like, I know these things. Oh, my God, that's so funny. And uh, so – the craziest thing is, like, they don't have a lot of clothes on The Price is Right, but when they do, they are the exact same price now. Like, I looked. That's so wild. Like, one thing they have on there are a lot of these Hager corduroy pants, like, total dad pants. So, like, you know what I'm talking about? Well, yeah. Guess what? You can still buy Hager corduroy pants. They look exactly the same. I'm sure they're much less quality because that's why yep. they are the same exact price yep. that they were exactly. not going to do. Like they were thirty dollars on the prices, right? I looked them up, twenty nine ninety five in twenty twenty one, and yeah, like that. Meanwhile, a car, the, the cars are always the hardest thing for me because I've never actually bought a new car. A new car in the eighties was about six thousand dollars. Wow. Yeah, I mean that just goes to show like the comparison is crazy. I I was thinking about this a couple of years ago because when I was selling vintage, I was often looking for, like, late 90s brands and stuff when I was, you know, my focus was more on my shop last flash. Um, And I remember I found, like, a Rampage dress that was clearly from the late 90s. And, right, love it so much. So if you don't know Rampage, basically, like, I feel like the equivalent, it was like a mall brand. Um, I feel like it kind of was, like, cool and edgy, like like an Urban Outfitters or something like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so this dress was, um, had its tag still on. It was dead stock. And it was, I think it was $59, and it was from the late 90s. So that was, like, over 20 years ago. And meanwhile, you know, I'm thinking to my current day, or at this point when I found it, fast fashion job, and we would try to sell that dress for $49. And that's 
pretty crazy to think about. Like, the price decrease. Yeah, it is insane, and that is real. And I think that is why you can't look at something that, like, you're selling or, well, any any of, like, the makers we know, you can't look at those things and say, well, they're so expensive because we don't understand how much things cost anymore. Mm-hmm. And, yes, you can go get a dress for $48 right now. I could you want a $48 brand new dress, holler at me. I got a list of places right. because I'm always trying to figure out who else I hate from a business perspective. And that $48 dress is going to be a piece of shit. Like it's yeah. going to be bad fabric. It's not going to fit you very well. It's going to have a crappy zipper that breaks after a couple wears. And it was made by people who live in poverty permanently, yeah. even though they work all the time. And mm-hmm. I think that's the thing. If there's one thing I can just drill into people's heads, it's to like look at things and ignore the price. Look at what the actual item is and realize mm-hmm. then where the value is. Yeah. And I think what you've been talking a lot about in uh, your trash month is think about the circularity of that item and what will happen when you're done with it. And, and how soon will you be done with it? Question that. Like, how long is this going to be in your closet? You know, right now my closet, you know, if I look at what's hanging in my wardrobe, I looked at it the other day and I was like, damn, like, I know I love vintage, but my closet is like 99% vintage. The one non-vintage item I'm actually wearing today was an Urban Outfitters top that I bought. It was probably one of the, my, the last fast fashion purchases I made. And I had been buying, like, a fair bit of fast fashion, but why are none of those things still in my closet? But yet, something I bought in college from a thrift store is still in my closet because I still love it, you know? Mm -hmm. That's partially why I decided to stop buying fast fashion was because the longevity of it was just not there. And, And not just in the quality, but, like, it just wouldn't appeal to me after a year. And not to mention... I also found that I could never flip those items. I could never sell the items I bought from Zara. I could never, you know, like there was nothing I could do but donate it or, you know, worst case scenario, throw it in the garbage if it's trash. But yet when I buy vintage, if I decide after a year or so, like, eh, it's not really my style anymore. It doesn't fit me right. Somebody else will probably want it. In most cases, I'd I'd be able to sell it to someone else because there's more lasting appeal. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that is so true, man. I'm getting all these flashbacks right now because, you know, I've worked in fast fashion for most of my career and I would buy a lot of stuff from work. You know, I get that discount and you're like addicted to buying stuff because mm-hmm. you clothes all day, every day. And I would find that I never held on to any of that stuff. I can't even think of any of the fast fashion stuff I've bought in the past five years. Like I probably don't have it anymore. I have a couple things. Yeah but very few. And I would find that if I wanted to set, go sell it to like the Buffalo exchange or something, I would have to sell it within the same six month period that I bought it or no mm-hmm. one's ever going to want it again. Right. Exactly. And uh, so I, there's just no value there. Where, meanwhile, I have vintage clothes that I've had since I was a teenager. Yeah, me too. That's the most important thing to me is for all of us to like change our attitude about what we buy. Yeah, it's not definitely. like you can never buy anything again. Like I get really offended by all these like recurring New York times articles that are like, 
I didn't buy anything for a year and this is what it was like. And then I'm like, you have a $6,000 espresso machine. <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly. It's like you have so many things already that, yeah, that are yeah. far more than most people have. So like, you know, <laughs> tiny, tiny claps for that one. But. Yeah. Yeah. It's always like super privileged, like fairly wealthy people. I would like to see someone who is living like us, you know what I mean? Right. Say, like I didn't buy anything for a year and I would still be like, how's that possible? Like, mm-hmm. did you not, did your underwear not rip at some point? Right. You know, did exactly. the underwear not come out of your bra? That I had a spell of that in November <laughs> and it was very devastating. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, is there anything else you'd like to tell us today? No, I think, I mean, I, if people are interested in this, maybe I can like, you know, cause I am still trying to figure out how to, to scale so I would love to continue to share, like, as that develops, because um, I think, you know, what I found earlier this week, I did one of those, like, AMA, like, ask me anything, and I realized, like, just how many small business owners or, you know, makers, people who are trying to kind of build their brands a little bit, um, how many of those people are following me, because I had so many questions pertaining to that sort of stuff, so maybe next time we chat I can update you on on how it's going um and whether I've been able to figure out how to increase production obviously you know I'm not talking about trying to dramatically increase my production it's still going to be slow fashion very small batch yeah um, but I do you know of course want to be able to meet the demand a little bit better than I feel like I'm able to right now yeah, so. yeah, and you deserve to have some time when you are not working. I know that that yeah, is that'd be hard. Nice. That'd be cool. I'm in the same boat. I get it. <laughs> That'll be a plus. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I definitely want to hear about like you know next month we'll check in again, like hear what's going on because this is the future. You know. Yeah. I hope this so. is how we change things. The I I really I want, want to be a part of. <laughs> Me too. The thing that's always most important to me is that, like, and you and I have talked about this before, how we are, like, in a bubble. We know that. Yeah. Right? We kind of have this, like, feedback loop of, like, the people we follow on social media who follow us and talk to us, they're they're thinking the same things. But Mm -hmm. how do we take this idea of the cottage industry of many, 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 many small brands versus, you know, 20 huge ones, you know, 20 companies make 97% of the profits of selling clothing in the world. That's, that's like disgusting. Right. So what we really need is hundreds of thousands of tiny brands who the people are not struggling who work there. They are having a good life. They can go on vacation and save their retirement and eat good food, all of those things. We're not talking about everybody being broke like we are right now, you know, right. it's a different future. What we need to do is make that idea accessible and appealing to the people who currently buy most of their clothes at Old Navy. Exactly. That's exactly. our biggest challenge. That's our biggest yeah, challenge. Totally. So something for everyone to think about. How are we going to do that? What's our plan? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was so nice to talk to you today. I feel like it had been a you while. Too. I know it had been for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, I will talk to you again soon. Yes. Bye. Thanks for having Amanda. Bye. Bye. As I was listening to my conversation with Danny again, well, first off, I talked way too much. I think I just get really excited when I talk to Danny, and I feel kind of like an ass. (laughs) But beyond that, 
It made me think a lot about how we both agreed that the existing larger companies and TBH, the medium-sized companies too, cannot just suddenly change their ways because profit and pursuing the most profit possible is so baked into their existence. It's the foundation of their house, if you will. And I bet you're wondering why that is. Like, how did that happen? Well, here's kind of how it goes when you're starting a business. Initially, the focus is on breaking even. Like, you don't want to lose money. So making a profit off of everything you sell allows you to keep the doors open and expand your business. Then you can try new products, buy services that make your life easier, hire new people, all of those things, right? The next priority is growth, and that means selling more stuff this year than you did last year, and next year, selling more than you did this year, and so on. And that's what we call in the industry a positive comp. If it's a negative comp, it means you sold less this year than last year, and that's somewhere you never want to be. Any investors you meet are going to want to know about this comp. Like how high is it? Is it double digits? Is it triple digits? They want to know. And in fact, when you're out there looking for venture capital, that's what they want to hear first before anything else. It's one of the reasons a lot of brands kind of lose their luster and integrity when they accept VC money. Because suddenly the primary mission is growth, not great product or social responsibility or even any sort of accountability to their community. So you can already see how some companies lose their way very early in the game. But after your business has been around for a while, your business becomes what we would call, quote, mature. And that growth might plateau, meaning that you might only sell a tiny fraction more this year versus last year. But investors and stockholders do not love that narrative. So it's time to start focusing on maximizing profit. And that's where we see goods getting cheaper and cheaper to make while prices stay the same or increase slightly. Using Forever 21 as an example, they had exponential growth every year for a long time. Like any sort of investor's dream come true. And so they thought they would never stop growing. So they opened more and more stores, just spent so much more money. If there's anything you can take away from listening to Close Horse, it's that stores are very, very expensive and they're quite luxurious to have. So they're opening all these stores and then they hit a massive plateau. They even saw a decrease in sales, yet they had all of these additional expenses from all of the huge stores that they were opening all over the world. The problem here was how could they maximize profit because that is what the average retailer would do next. They were already selling stuff so cheaply and they were squeezing factories for the lowest cost, you know, for like a decade. They couldn't raise prices because customers would leave, although I do think they tried that for a while. And so you know what? They went bankrupt. And you know what else? That's what a lot of other retailers are working their way through right now, which makes me very fearful of what they will do next to keep costs down and profits up. For one, they will lay off more workers. Remember, I was laid off as part of a corporate plan to reduce expenses and maximize profit. It's happening a lot right now. 
Retailers are also pushing for aggressive discounts and shorter turnaround times that take money out of the pockets of workers and put them at greater risk of contracting COVID. On average, buyers are asking for costing that is 20% lower than 2019. Basically, they're leveraging the weakened position of the factories to stack more profits for their retail employers. Meanwhile, garment workers' salaries have dropped on average from $187 per month to $147 during the pandemic. With most of these workers taking on debt so that they can buy food. Unfortunately, the industry continues to prioritize profits over ethics. And I just don't know how they turn that around anytime soon. That's why we need to be supporting small businesses like Danny's and all of the other makers and business people in our community. Where yes, growth is important, but not like exponential growth. Just enough to keep the business going and allow the owners and workers to make a good living. No one expects to become a billionaire because no one needs that much money in the first place. Why do billionaires exist when other people are making $147 per month? It's just so wrong. I'm obsessed with the idea of returning the fashion industry to a cottage industry and not just because it's similar to cottagecore, although that does not hurt. <laughs> I will say something I've noticed recently, which is not going to surprise you, is that I think some brands are adopting the label of small business as a sort of talisman to protect them from, I don't know, accountability, or at least it's like a very savvy marketing play. I've seen a few brands that I know for a fact have taken millions in VC money, call themselves small businesses on social media. Like, what does that mean for businesses like Danny's then? And do you think that that's okay? I'm worried that brands are seeing what our community is doing and they're like, hmm, how can I adopt that as a marketing story? One more reason to be very wary and demand transparency. If a business says they're a small business, but you look at their Instagram or their website and it, it just doesn't add up, just ask them, how many employees do you have? What's your annual revenue? If they're not publicly traded, which of course then would mean that they are a massive company, they may not want to tell you that. But you know what? I think it's time that we change that. I know that transparency is a good word that has been ruined by marketing. Hi, I'm looking at you, Everlane. But I think it's time for us to reclaim it and require it. I will say that I'm so proud of all the work Danny has been doing to grow her business. And I think she's setting a standard for transparency that not only should all small businesses adopt, but we customers should expect it. Running a business is hard. Like, show us the challenges you face because we're here to support you and encourage you. There's no shame in saying, hey, this is really hard. I don't know what to do. I think it's a good education for all of us. It's, it's good to hear these things, you know? So if you're not following Danny already, you can find her on Instagram at Picnicware, and that's W-E-A-R. And you can also find her website at Picnicware.com. Well, that concludes another hotline episode of Close Horse. You know, when I started the show, I would have never guessed that I would be able to build entire episodes just out of phone calls from the Close Horse community. 
it's a pretty exciting feeling. <laughs> and literally almost every day, I kind of tear up for a minute when I think about how lucky I am to have met so many awesome, talented, passionate, just oh, amazing people in the last few months. So thank you to all of you for taking the time to listen, for reaching out to me, for telling your friends to listen. It it means more to me than I can ever describe. It also makes me really excited about all of the incredible things we're going to accomplish this year together. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Source. If you like what you're hearing, you know what I'm going to say. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, tell your friends because we're all influencers. Thank you to everyone who has shared our content or recommended us on Instagram. I love hearing from all of you. I love seeing the reposts. I love when you ask me questions. It makes me so happy. You can join in on all the Clothes Horse adventures on Instagram at Clothes Horse Podcast. As a reminder, you can reach out to me anytime for the sources I use for the information I share here and on social media. I've got so many bookmarks for you. <laughs> I'm also just going to ask again, if you have a story about Etsy or something really important about your experiences selling on Etsy to share, please reach out to me. I'm going to be writing and putting together that script in the coming weeks, so I would love to hear from you. And don't forget, if you have a question, an episode idea, a story to share, please reach out. I love hearing from you, and I know you all love hearing from other listeners. You can call the hotline at 717-925-7417. There's also the old-fashioned way. It's what we call email. <laughs> and that's Amanda at CloseHorse.World. Just a reminder that the Close Horse blog launches on 214, aka Valentine's Day. That's just two weeks away, but it's not too late to get involved. We will need new content constantly, so don't worry about being late to the party. You're still welcome. If you're interested, please email me at amanda at closehorse.world and I can forward all of the information to you. Also, if you want to meet other Close Horse listeners, join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group and I'll share a link to that in the show notes. If you need a new podcast, which don't we all right now, check out my other show, The Department, which I co-host with my friend Kim. We're in the midst of a really intense series about the 2000s. And, well, you should just join us. So far, we've talked about Von Dutch, Juicy, Rock of Love, Perez Hilton, Celebutants, and there's so much more to come. Every time we're like, okay, I think we've outlined the entire aughts, we come up with another thing we haven't covered yet. So there's much more to come. Thanks, as always, to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye. Bye.